The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering here together to sit beneath your spirit as he teaches us. He teaches us what you have written in your word about what you have done in your son to bring us into fellowship with you. Thank you for the privilege. Now we ask you, will you enact the fullness of that privilege by causing your spirit now to run through the room here and speak to each one of our hearts the instruction, the correction, the rebuke, the encouragement, the affirmation, the upholding, whatever it is that we need to speak that word to each person here from this passage about what you have done in Jesus. Make that real for us. Bring life here. Teach, build, encourage that we would be a church that that follows you, that resembles you, that honors you, and in that gain glory for your Son. Do that, we pray, this morning. Use this passage. Help us to hear it, to rest in it. Grow us, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. What is your greatest need? We live in a fallen world and we're all broken and we all have tons of needs, many of them quite large and quite serious. What is your greatest need? It's important to know that because when you figure out what the thing is that you most need, then it will send you off looking for it, hunting. And then when you find it, it'll, it'll give you rest and it'll give you perspective on all the other needs. If you, if you find the biggest need and meet it, and everything else kind of falls into place somewhere underneath of that, and there's a rest to come. So what is your greatest need? The Bible tells us, because we need to know, and we often forget. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get confused about things. So the Bible makes it really clear. And it will come at it from different angles. It will say it in different words. It will say it positively and negatively. But to say it in the language like what we find here in our passage today in Matthew 9, our greatest need as human beings is to have our sins forgiven. If you're a Christian, and you hear me say that, probably something in you says, oh, sure. If I didn't catch the song right before this, that's what we're talking about, sure. That makes sense. That's my biggest need. We understand that. Okay, great. What does it mean to actually live in that? And how does it affect the rest of your life? Is it actually something that you you have sought after and now having found, if you're a Christian, rest in and use that to give perspective on all the rest of life? Is it? And if you're not a Christian this morning... I hope that something here in this passage, and as we talk about what what we see here Jesus doing and saying, that something here in this says, yeah, 
I've got a lot of things that are problems. I have a lot of needs, but they all sit beneath that one. That you would discover that's your greatest need and you would seek it in him. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Our greatest need, sin forgiven, and how God has done that in Jesus. We're going to come at that by looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 to 8. I'm going to read it then make two observations that are of unequal length. The first one's much longer. The second one's a little bit shorter. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and the glorified God who had given such authority to men. Matthew 9. Two observations. Here's the first. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sin by God. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sin by God. Verse 2, here's another incident back in Capernaum. And as we mentioned before, Matthew takes these stories and he, and he assembles them, puts them together in a certain order, in a certain way, and tells them with certain details that, that suit his purposes. This story occurs in other Gospels, in other ways, with other, with other details. Maybe one that you know right off is how they tore through the roof of the house to get Jesus down in him. That's this story. Matthew skips it so as to keep the story nice and tight, focused on what he thinks is, is most useful for his purposes. He just tells us, here's a group of people who brought a paralyzed man lying on a bed or a mat, something firm they could carry him on. And they brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, their, plural, meaning at least the man and the, the men who carried him there, probably includes the guy though also because he probably wasn't being carried against his will, their faith, Jesus saw their faith, Clearly, that's the trigger for his speaking here. He saw their faith and then said, My son, take heart. Very encouraging prelude. If you hear something like that, you know that's, that's warm, that's, that's encouraging. Here's somebody looking at me in a positive light and afflicted and downcast. That's good to hear. This, and this guy is afflicted and downcast. He's paralyzed, which is hard now. Double, triple, quadruple hard back then without any medical aid, without any technology aid. This man's probably destitute, probably at the lowest spot of anybody could, anybody could be in life. He is afflicted and downcast. And he hears, take heart, my son. That's encouraging. But then there's an odd wrinkle, right? 
take heart, my son, implies Jesus is about to help him. And this man is low and downcast, the lowest he could possibly be in life. He is afflicted and he is, he is in this terrible spot. And he has come right in front of this healer Jesus who has performed so many countless miracles of healing people. And so you expect that what's coming up right after that, the, the change, the, the blessing that's about to come when he encourages me, the blessing is probably related to the paralysis, I hope, right? That's what, that's what you're thinking. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. All of them, right now, by me. That's what Jesus says. Now that statement is an astonishing claim by Jesus about himself, and it sends the listeners off into a tailspin. We'll come to that later. That's the second observation. But at the moment, we need to look at what all of this says, that, that short little statement, what all of it says about sin. Why does Jesus follow his encouraging, warm, endearing statement about a promised coming blessing? Why does he follow that with the statement about the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus knows the answer to the opening question. What's your greatest need? Jesus knows the answer to that. He knows the real greatest need this man faces and therefore the real greatest possible blessing he could receive is not about the paralysis and having that healed, though that is a great need. For sure. Jesus knows that the greatest problem that this man faces and the greatest need that he therefore has is his sins to be forgiven by God. Why is that true? There's some things that we need to kind of get on the table, be clear about, and perhaps learn, or maybe just recall kind of maybe move back to more a central spot in our view here for those of us for whom this is familiar. Things either to learn or to recall. Why is this the greatest need that this man and that all of us face? Because of what sin is. And because of what sin unforgiven brings us. Because of what our sins left with free reign, not brought under the control of God and and removed off of us, what, what they do to us and to the world. All throughout the Bible, story after story and the storyline repeatedly is pointing out to us the wreckage that sin brings to the world and to people. When we, individually, when we commit in thought, word, and in our deeds, or we fail to commit, in our thoughts and our words and our deeds, what God says or what God forbids. You can go either way with this. Doing what he says we shouldn't do or not doing what he says we should do in thought and in word and in deed. When we do that, we wreck the world. It's the story of the Bible. We wreck the world and we wreck ourselves. Sin is not just a thing that we shouldn't do. It's poison that we drink and then pour out on everybody around us. It's destructive. 
the wreckage that it brings to us, it wrecks our relationships, it wrecks society, it dehumanizes us, it hurts us. It's our greatest problem because of how it affects us and all those around us. It's terrible. But actually, that's not the half of it. In fact, one could say, yeah, sure, but really the, the real problem with sin is not what it does to me, it does this way, it's what it does this way. Of how sin, individual sins and the collective whole of sin, what it does as it creates a devastating problem between the individual human being and God, it cuts us off from relationship with God. Why is that? Because of, at its core, what sin is, is not just the doing of things that are wrong or the not doing of things that are right, but it is the whole, beneath all of that, there is a, a restructuring of the world that says, I will remove God from the place of rightful authority and put myself there instead. And then I'll decide what should be done, and I'll decide what should be valued, I'll decide what should be worshipped, I'll decide what should be followed and chased and loved. I will. Get, get off the throne, I'll get on the throne, and if I need you, I'll summon you. That's not the individual sins, that's the structure of sin and the root behind, beneath it all. Is a dethroning, a de-godding of God, and an enthroning, an elevating of self. My will will be done here on earth as it should be in heaven. Is at the core of sin. So it's not just wrong and foolish, it's actually evil. That the God who made all things, the only God who is. I know there are lots of religions that talk about there being many gods, and there are some religions that use kind of sleight of hand in the linguistic sense and say, well, there's only one God here, there's other gods elsewhere. No, 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 no. The only God who is, the only God who is, existed before there was anywhere. Before there was any place, there was God. And then God made somewhere. It's hard for us to imagine. We can't actually imagine what it's like to be outside of anywhere. But that's God, the only God who is. And then he made this place out of nothing. Out of nothing. And then made each of us to occupy little places and spaces, to live in certain countries, behind certain borders, in certain jobs, in certain times. He's God. He reigns. No contest, he reigns. And therefore, as the eternally existing God who reigns, he is worthy, and he is the only one who is worthy of being not just honored and worshipped, but listened to and obeyed. And we, these little creatures on this small planet, ah, say no thank you, I'll take it from here. To set him aside and make ourselves primary is not just folly, it is evil. And God, who is no idolater, will not allow that. 
it would be evil for God to let us get away with it. Sin is not a boo-boo. Sin is not something done wrong. Individual sins are examples of that, but it's all pointing at the core, which is, in fact, the worship of me in the place of him. And the God who is just will not allow that and condemns sin and condemns sinners and promises to judge and destroy it all out of his creation one day. Jesus warned us about this repeatedly at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, passage after passage, watch out, that's coming. Yeah, sin wrecks my marriage, but it's a lot worse than that. Sin sets each individual contrary to God and brings us into alarming, grave danger, brings us into the judgment. Yeah, so the destruction that sin works on us and works in the world, yes, but the judgment that it brings on us, that's what makes sin our greatest enemy, our greatest problem, and the need to have that dealt with, to have it wiped out, forgiven, cleansed off of us, and then cleansed out of us. That's our greatest need. To have that happen then would be our greatest blessing. May God open our eyes to see that and to believe it. Maybe to, maybe to hear that and believe that for the first time, or maybe for, for many of us to kind of move that back to the center and say, like, oh, yeah. I thought I was having difficulty figuring out where to find the mortgage payment. No, 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 no. This is my biggest problem. It, and seeing that dealt with it will give perspective of everything else, as we'll talk about in a moment. But may he give us eyes to, to see that and to believe it, and to want that if it's new to you, to want forgiveness from God, to come to Jesus asking in faith, Lord, please deal with this. You would be fortunate if that would happen. And he promises anybody who comes to me, I'll give it to him. That's your need. May he give us eyes to see that. And if you were to see that and to find that, you would be heartened for sure. In fact, I'm, I'm sure this, this man was actually heartened. We read this story, and it almost is a little bit of a check on what we really value, because we read this story and say, oh, dang. And when you feel that, ah, oh, bummer. Ah, uh, ha, ha, <laughs> you just got caught. Because you think, when you feel like, ah, oh, bummer, you feel like he got, man, he got like second best. He did not feel that. We read this story often, and we assume that he, lying there on his mat, son, your sins are forgiven. He was certainly expecting something that didn't happen, but it's a little bit like I didn't dare to even think about my, my sins are forgiven? Because anybody who's actually forgiven does not then say, gee, I guess that's good too. Thanks. On my deathbed now, I'll have total enlightenment. So I got that going for me. If you know where that's from. On my mat here now, I've got forgiveness. That's, I got that going for me. That's nice. 
No, no. No. Anybody who's forgiven comes alive and is a new creation in Christ, and he, and he like, sees. There's a burden lifted off him. All we were just talking about is gone. This man was indeed heartened as he lay there. He took heart like any one of us can. If God would forgive you today, or if God would, would rejuvenate you, would restore to you some awareness of what has happened. So maybe if you're a Christian here, for your heart and joy, you want to ask God, Lord, would you restore to me, not first would you restore to me the joy, but first would you restore to me the gravity of my sin? And then would you restore to me the magnitude of your magnificence? The gravity of my sin, the magnitude of your magnificence. And then would you restore to me the amazing, amazing wonder that you in grace would forgive a wretch like me May God give you that kind of a heart that would then be restored to the joy of your salvation. Christian, you have to walk through that. That's where joy lies. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I invite you, please, walk through that. It's where joy, it's where a true heartened life can be found. That being said, I think there is something more here that I spent a fair bit of time thinking about this week and trying to kind of like get my mind around and, and sit in and kind of press into, is that, is that real? Can I actually experience that? And the truth, I think, is that yes, one can, a Christian can experience this, but it is hard. It requires a divine work which makes sense. So there's, there's more here. Here's what I mean. First part here is take heart, your sins are forgiven. And the guilt, the wrath, the judgment is removed off of you. That's kind of like a, a lifting of a burden, which is heartening. But the more here, I think, is there's also a positive giving and and a resting of something on this person who's forgiven. So the first part is a minus, if you will, and the second part is a plus. That enables us to live in an odd place of contentment with all the affliction of life. So let's think about this here. Forgiven, adopted as God's beloved child, the Christian has the ability to relate to God now, intimately and personally. And the Spirit of God then lives inside of the Christian and fills us, controls us, like when alcohol is in you and it controls you, it, it controls how you think and how you feel. The Spirit of God is supposed to fill, to control how we think and how we feel as a Christian, that's your privilege now, being forgiven of your sins. And how then does that hearten us as we deal with all our disablements 
and afflictions and sufferings. Paralysis, maybe, like this man. Jesus could have left him right there paralyzed, like most people are left paralyzed in the world. He did heal him, of course, we know the rest of the story. He did heal him, but he healed him to make a point. He didn't have to heal him. So how would he be heartened if he had been left for longer than a, a moment paralyzed? Or us in the rest of the things that we face. Some of the things we face have names. Take this on here and let it sit here. Some of the things we face have names like cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis, autism spectrum, names. Some of those things we see right away, and then other things we see or they arise a little bit later in life. Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, endometriosis. And then some things come with time. Alzheimer's, macular degeneration, erectile dysfunction, cancer, congestive heart failure, and add in car accidents and crime and combat injuries. Our bodies and our minds are broken. Now, I named those things so that we could put them out here and look at them. None of them are statistically very common, but all of them together probably touched almost everybody in this room. Either you personally right now or a loved one of yours right now, or if not, by chance, then you'll meet it tomorrow. In this world, you will have trouble. None of those things, any one of them are, are very common, but all of them together are completely common. That's the world. That's our world. Those words are in this room. Right? I think it's worth looking right at all of that, at our present reality, and then put right next to it, take heart, son, daughter. Take heart. And not, not, take heart. We found a cure. Take heart, there's a treatment for that. We should chase after cures and treatments. Jesus healed a ton of people, and if we got anything like the heart of Jesus, we'd want to chase after cures and treatments and rejoice greatly when and if we find them. That's for sure. But the gospel offers us something more better. Jesus' words here about Jesus' work later on the cross, the gospel offers us a far better, certain, lasting path to heartened joy in the middle of all that when there isn't a cure or a treatment. And that's good news because most of the time there isn't a cure or a treatment. The words still exist here. Something that works just as robustly if there is or if there isn't a cure or treatment. We can still know heartened, encouraged, robust joy while sorrowing amidst the sickness, while lying on our mat. 
take heart, he says, in that moment. Your sins are forgiven, comma, and therefore, track with all this, this is the battle. Your sins are forgiven, comma, and therefore you are able to commune with God. So knock, seek, ask, cry out for the Holy Spirit to fill you with his fruit. Ask, seek, knock, Spirit of God, will you give me strength to know the wide, long, high, deep love of God for me? That's Ephesians 3. That's the Spirit's job in us, to know. Not to know about, to experientially soak in the love of the one God who made everything, who existed before there was a place, who made a place and made you and made you in this place and made you like you are, exactly like you are. And who loves you wide, long, high, deep in that spot. Spirit of God, you're in me because my sins are forgiven and you've come to me on purpose to love me. So show me, help me to know that love. That's Ephesians 3, possible. Ask, seek, knock for it. And, Spirit of God, give me eyes to see then that to live in this spot, soaked up like a sponge pulling in all of your love, to live now is Christ and to die is gain. Not to live is gain. To live now is Christ. I'm here where I am right now as I am for Christ. And to die is gain. And give me eyes then to, to want to know you in the middle of my suffering. That can be you. Because that's Philippians. That's true. And then ask him like First Peter says, And Spirit of God, will you give me eyes to see my inheritance that is kept for me in heaven by you. That is in... in completely independent of anything going on here that is kept for me in heaven by you. A place where there is a cure to this affliction that I have and where all will be gone and every tear will be wiped away and I will see you face to face. Will you give me eyes to see that and even right now seeing it, will you fill me with joy unspeakable and full of glory? That's 1 Peter 1. That is possible. That's the point. Spirit living in you, to give you joy unspeakable, full of glory. And if that were to happen, then you would be filled with a joy that is greater than all they have when their wine, their new wine and their grain abounds. That's Psalm 4. The world has great joy when they got everything going for them. When the grain, when the bins are full and the wine is plentiful, they're happy. But Psalm 4, the psalmist experienced a joy greater than that. That's our life. That's all possible. That's all the point, in fact, of the Spirit of God coming to live inside of you, Christian, filling you. Not to give you grain and wine and sometimes here and there to give you some sense of the love of God, sure. 
or occasionally to help you see that you're here to live for Christ, or at other times to, to realize how much the suffering here is actually ex- helping you experience him better, but really it's about giving you a grain of wine. No, 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 you got it all backwards. The point of the Spirit coming to dwell inside of us is to make us alive to God. To help us to see, to see who he is, and then to see all of the rest of the perspective on life as he sees it, to to value it as he values it, to see our, our, our place here as he sees our place here, and to take heart as we realize that all of the light and momentary afflictions that we are dealing with right now as 2 Corinthians 4 says they are, light and momentary, not here, by comparison to what's coming. The the light and momentary afflictions that we are living in the middle of, that we are lying down on top of, are actually attaining for us then. That's the language, is it not? Are attaining for us then a reward full and wide and deep and heavy. Glory. If you're a Christian, that's the Christian life. That's all possible because your sins are forgiven. Now, as I said, I kind of wrestled with this throughout this week. I thought, can I experience that even just a little bit in my own pretty light and pretty momentary afflictions right now? And the answer is, yeah, but it's really hard. So I realize can dial down the temperature, I guess, here. I, I realize all the words and all the afflictions that I listed, some of you are in the middle of them right now, and they are far worse than what I'm facing right now. And you say, I hear all that, but oh my goodness. But oh my goodness. This affliction does not feel light and momentary. I know, I know. All I can say is, I just walked us through Bible verse after Bible verse, and I think the reason those are Bible verses is because God means to give them to you in the middle of your affliction to encourage you with them. I think. I think that's the Spirit's aim in you is to give you eyes to see and to, and to know the glory and to know the love and to experience it in the middle of the afflictions. I think he means, the Spirit is, he means to communicate to you in the middle of your afflictions that your sins are forgiven and Christ is yours and he lives in you as a down payment on a glorious coming future. And his fruit is blossoming in you. Your eyes are opened a little bit. You see through a glass dimly. But heaven is coming, and with it your inheritance and a face-to-face communion with God. Take heart. I think that's his message to you, in the middle of the affliction, not instead of it. Set your mind on these things that are above Christian. That, that's the battle. That's the battle. That's why I said I think it's really hard and it requires a divine work. 
Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief is our constant cry. Every morning, as Colossians 3 urges us, we rise up still in the middle of our afflictions, or we can't rise up because of our afflictions, to set our minds on things above. You can do that, and that's the point of the Spirit, to empower you to do that. Take heart, Christian. It's real. This message is real. Unless you're not forgiven of your sins. Then the best that you have, perhaps, is a perfectly working, strong, and beautiful body that will fail and die one day and then you'll face the judgment without Jesus. And that's a problem. You can have far more than that if you'll come to this Jesus by faith alone. You'll have great hope now. You'll have the possibility of walking through hardship now in hope and then life evermore. But until then, no. The rest of us, though, you're in Christ. You are blessed because you are spirit indwelt and God adopted and heaven bound, an heir of the kingdom. And Jesus did that for you, which is the second observation. Jesus is the only one with authority to forgive our sins. Jesus is the only one with authority to forgive our sins. When Jesus forgives the paralytic sins, not everybody's happy. Verse 3, some of the Jewish religious leaders, experts in the Old Testament law, says they, they look at this and they accuse him of blasphemy, at least in their minds, but probably they were also grumbling to each other, muttering under their breaths. Blasphemy, because they heard Jesus right. Jesus did, in the moment, forgive this man's sin as if he is allowed to do that, as if he's God, which was to lower God down to the level of a man, so they think, and therefore to blaspheme God. Jesus comes right back at them, seeing their thoughts. It says literally, seeing their thoughts. Maybe he's reading their body language. Maybe he reads their minds. I'm not sure. But he sees the evil accusation, the condemning attitude within them, blasphemy. And he asks them a question, verse 5, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, like I just did, or to say, stand up, paralyzed man, pick up your mat, and walk home? Which is easier? And while the scribes, of course, are bothered by what they see as blasphemy, they have course recognize that it's far easier to pronounce forgiveness because nobody can know the difference. Can't check that. And he's going to walk away from this having said that and nobody's going to know that he's lying. I mean, it's really easy to talk. It's cheap. He can say that. Sure. What's far harder would be to tell the paralyzed man to get up and walk. 
doubly hard because not only would that require a visible miracle here, but the miracle would require the power of God, and this guy just blasphemed. God's not going to help him. God's not going to condone what he just did and make it look like he's righteous. So that's doubly hard to do that. Okay, so that you all may know something about the Son of Man. Last time we heard that phrase was just a little bit ago up in chapter 8, verse 20, and Jesus used that phrase there. There is a thread we talked about through the Old Testament where the Son of Man is connected to the Messiah and a divine, remarkable figure from Daniel. But most of the time, and many people at the time, heard and thought of Son of Man as like David used it in the Psalms, as a way of speaking humbly, humble humanity. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, that's Psalm 8. Lowly, just a guy sort of language. Jesus used that to kind of point out that he's just a humble man before, and that's what he's getting at again here. I'm just a simple guy, but not just a simple guy so that you will know something about this simple guy. And one of you said, just committed blasphemy. So that you may know something about the Son of Man, that I also have divine authority on earth here to forgive sin. I'm just a guy with divine authority on earth to forgive sin. So that you'll know that, watch. And he tells the man to rise, and it's, so, it's like so simple and blunt. And he got up and went home. And the crowd loses it. It doesn't say how the scribes responded, but the crowds were afraid, it says. Very unsettled and very uncomfortable because, again, like happens often, some sort of a freaky incident just happened. This is probably like hair on the back of your neck stand up because there's this, this claim of forgiveness of sin and there's this, this contest with the scribes and then this remarkable thing just happened in front of them. They are afraid, but they realize that God has done something here though they don't quite understand what, God has given authority to this simple guy here. Praise God. Authority, the word's used twice here. That's the point of emphasis, that Jesus has authority to forgive sin. Proven by his authority over paralysis, but he's made the story all along about sin and forgiveness. Our need for it and his rightful power to give it. That's a remarkable truth to know and rest in. It's easy to say that, but it's also easy to kind of miss it. This Jesus only, only, this Jesus only, when approached in faith only, is the one who can give, has the right to rightly give the thing that we most need. Only. We don't make ourselves forgiven. He forgives. We don't make ourselves worthy of being forgiven. We just come in faith. He, did, he didn't look at them and say, have you offered the right sacrifice? 
or I see how much you have exerted yourself and how committed you are to this by tearing apart the roof. Or He saw their faith. That was it. We need to see that faith is the trigger here, but of course we also need to acknowledge that we don't have enough here in this passage to get everything about the whole doctrine of justification by faith. That's a big, big name for the Christian teaching about how people are declared not guilty, how people are forgiven through faith alone. We need more from the Bible about that. We, do, we don't have anything here specifically that says, actually, it's the faith of each individual person. It's not a collective faith. We don't, we don't get that here. We don't get anything here about faith in what about Jesus. There's nothing about the cross, for instance, that points out where it is that justice happens because God just can't like ignore sin. He can't just say, never mind, I forgive you. He has to be just and the cross is where God actually paid for sin, took onto Jesus all of the guilt due us, pays for it. That's how he can be just and forgive. That all is taught clearly in the rest of the Bible, but it's not here. All that we see here is that Jesus is the guy, and we've got to come to him in faith. For you, Christian, having found it and received that, rest in it. It's done. We then can live saying it's accomplished so that all that we were just talking about is actually true. Forgiven in Jesus, the Spirit lives in me, and all of the promises are mine. I can trust them for us. But it also tells us something more, that, that it's not, not a part of this passage in particular, but it tells us something more because it explains to us, Christian, what the greatest need of all the rest of the world is. We look out at a world that has all kinds of troubles and hardships, and we want to help with all of them, we want to be gracious. We want to be compassionate. We want to be indiscriminately kind and helpful to the world all around us. But we have to also keep focused on the greatest need is forgiveness of sin, and that only happens in this Jesus. People need to hear about it. And they probably won't hear about him unless somebody tells them. And the people who tell them might be us. To tell them about the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of the culture or of somebody's imagination. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And people need to hear that so that they can find the same heartened joy that we have. This Jesus has authority to forgive sin. And people need to hear about him. Let me pray. Lord, would you help us to settle these things in our minds, particularly, I think for me, the, 
biggest unsettling piece is how do I deal with taking heart amidst affliction? There probably are some of us in the room, Lord, that need help with that, need it settled in our minds. So would you please speak the individual truths or the individual hearts that are necessary, that are needed? Minister to your people, Spirit of God. Correct us and encourage us. And I pray that at the end of this, you would also in some way say to each of us, go, go with this. Go in the joy of this. Go, go in the heartened encouragement of this and tell others where they can find it. Would you move us in that direction too, Lord? Thank you for being a good comforter and a good encourager and a good sender of your people. You are a good, good father to us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.